Malone. Welcome to another edition of Sunday Dive. I'm Katie Patrizio, and today we're talking about the readings for the 30th Sunday in Ordinary Time, October 24th, 2021. Jesus makes his final stop before reaching Jerusalem, passing through the ancient town of Jericho. On his way out of town, the cries of a blind man reach his ears, compelling him to stop. Our Lord's encounter with and subsequent healing of the blind man are full of Old Testament resonances. In our gospel, we see the fulfillment of many prophecies announcing the arrival of the Messiah. We find fascinating parallels between Joshua's entry into Jericho and our gospel, and we discover a unique echo of David's encounter with the blind in this encounter of Bartimaeus with Christ. Thanks so much uh, for joining us again for the podcast. Uh, always grateful to have you. Um, uh, before we get started, a quick announcement. I am not going to have an episode for you next week. I know. Very sad. I'm going on vacation. I seem to go on vacation a lot. At least at least that's what my coworkers tell me. Um, <laughs> I'm going on vacation again um, next week. So I will not have an episode for you next week. I apologize, but I should have one for you the following week. Okay. We are quickly um, wrapping up ordinary time. We only have a handful of Sundays left in which we will be looking at the normal kind of progression of Mark's gospel. And I say normal kind of because we are um, rapidly approaching um, Jesus's passion narrative. And so as we move towards that, we might skip around here and there. Um, because the passion narrative was primarily read right during um, Lent. So we're going to try to move, the church is going to try to move us through um, some of those other other kind of sections of Mark's gospel as we draw closer to the Feast of Christ the King, which wraps up the liturgical year, looking forward to Advent, okay? So um, yes, no episode next week, an episode the following week, and we are rapidly moving towards what the secular world would call Christmas, which starts in like three weeks. (laughs) All right, Mark chapter 10 verses 46 through 52 is our gospel today. Let's read it together to kickstart our time. They came to Jericho as he and his disciples and a large crowd were leaving Jericho. Bartimaeus, son of Timaeus, a blind beggar was sitting by the roadside. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many sternly ordered him to be quiet, but he cried out even more loudly, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stood still and said, call him here. And they called the blind man saying to him, take heart, get up. He is calling you. So throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. Then Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? The blind man said to him, my teacher, let me see again. Jesus said to him, go, your faith has made you well. Immediately he regained his sight and followed him on the way. So that was again, Mark chapter 10 verses 46 through 52. Let's talk about our context. One of my favorite things to talk about. We are in Jericho. Okay. Jericho. People are uh, really only familiar with Jericho insofar as it's associated with Joshua and the story of Jericho and then marching around the city and then the the walls of the city falling, right? Jericho is a fascinating um, town. It is um, renowned 
for being the oldest continuously inhabited city in the entire world. The oldest continuously inhabited city in the entire world. Archaeologists have found remains of of settlements in and around Jericho that date back to, some say the 8,000 BC era. Others say even as far back as 9,000 BC. Okay, so this... This town is very old, the oldest continuously inhabited city in the world. Not only is it very old, it's very low. (laughs) It's the lowest city in the world. It's actually 800 feet below sea level. And this is in part due to its proximity to the Dead Sea. It's only miles from the Dead Sea, okay? Not only is it only miles from the Dead Sea, it's also only miles from the city of Jerusalem approximately 15 miles northeast of the city of Jerusalem. And when people would come on pilgrimage to Jerusalem, which recall, as we've been reading through Mark, Jesus is on pilgrimage to Jerusalem, essentially. Okay, He's headed to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And so he's not going to be the only one. Lots of Jews in Palestine at this time are also traveling to Jerusalem on pilgrimage. And it's not just during Passover that they do this. There's three major pilgrimage feasts on the Jewish liturgical calendar. But people would just visit Jerusalem in general um, pretty much all throughout the year. Jerusalem was was renowned for being a place worthy of visiting, in part because of the glory of the temple. It was, it was thought to be kind of one of the wonders of the ancient world. All right, so what am I trying to convey to you? That um, most people traveling, oftentimes people traveling from about Palestine to Jerusalem would travel along the Jordan River which would put them out near the city of Jericho, such that when you got far enough south along the Jordan River that you hit Jericho, you knew it was time to start heading um, west, right, towards um, the city of Jerusalem. And so people on pilgrimage traveling to Jerusalem would stop in Jericho. It was frequently their last stop before the following day when they would make it all the way to Jerusalem. Um, so so there's there appear to be crowds in Jerusalem, right? It says he and his disciples and a large crowd were leaving Jericho. Um, sorry, I said in Jerusalem. There will be in Jerusalem, but in Jericho, there appears to be large crowds. This is likely because of the proximity to the Passover. So many Jews are, are, are traveling through Jericho towards Jerusalem to enter the city of David in order to, to celebrate the Passover, all right? Um we are introduced to this man immediately in our gospel. His name is Bartimaeus. This is significant because Bartimaeus is going to be the the recipient of healing, right? Um, We saw that in our gospel. It's significant because in Mark's gospel, Bartimaeus is the only recipient of healing that is actually specifically named, all right? This has led some scholars to believe <clears throat> Excuse me. This has led some scholars to believe that Bartimaeus was um, was known about the the Christian community. Okay, um, and that's why he's referenced specifically here. But we're introduced to Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, who we're set, we're told is a blind beggar, and he's sitting by the roadside. Now, we know that he's probably been a beggar for quite some time because of where he is. Why do I say that? Because he's set up shop, if you will, in a very strategic location. First of all, he's in Jericho, okay? 
We said many people passing through Jericho, many of them on pilgrimage to Jerusalem. And so they're they're on a spiritual pilgrimage, hopefully open to almsgiving to the poor. And as many beggars are found, even in our own day and age, he is by the roadside. All right. Let's talk a little bit more about Bartimaeus's name, specifically how Bartimaeus's name is given here in Mark's gospel in the original Greek. So it's rendered in our English, um, at least our new revised standard uh, version translation as Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus. But actually in Greek, we're told that he is the son of Timaeus, Bartimaeus. All right. Now, this is a little bit unusual. The way that the English, um, the English um, translators of the gospel generally render it is kind of how we would expect it to be rendered. His name and then who he is, right? Like Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, as we read. But he is referred to, first of all, as who he is, the son of Timaeus, Bartimaeus. Now, it's even a little bit redundant because um, you maybe recall from like um, Peter, um, the, the, the passage regarding the primacy of Peter, where Jesus refers to him as Simon Bar Jonah. You might recall that Bar in Aramaic means son of, okay? So Bar Timaeus literally in Aramaic means son of Timaeus, okay? But we get it in Greek as the son of Timaeus, Bar Timaeus, who's a blind beggar, all right? Now, why is this significant? Evidently, it's important for Mark to identify Bartimaeus primarily as the son of Timaeus. And why might that be? Well, if we look to the following verse, verse 47, where we're introduced to Jesus, because Bartimaeus is calling out to him, we discover the same kind of awkward construction. The English renders it Jesus, son of David, but the Greek actually says son of David, Jesus. And so we have the son of Timaeus, Bartimaeus, and then we have the son of David, Jesus, okay? So there's like a, con- a contrast going on here. Um, the son of Timaeus is in need and the son of David can provide for that need. Well, when when Bartimaeus hears that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he begins to cry out, to shout, Son of David, Jesus, have mercy on me. And how do the crowds respond? <laughs> uh, be quiet, old man. I don't know if he's an old man, but <clears throat> that's kind of the vibe that comes through. Evidently, Jesus's followers, big surprise, because we're all in the same boat, are not always very uh, reflective of Jesus himself, right? Uh, a poor man who is blind and begging is crying out to Jesus and and the crowds about our lord are hushing him telling to telling him to be quiet quiet but this leads bartimaeus to cry out even louder mark tells us son of david have mercy on me son of david have mercy on me we're told at verse 49 that this catches Jesus's attention. And, and let's just let's just think about this for a moment. Let's just stop and place ourselves in Bartimaeus's shoes. Um, he's been blind. He's been begging by the roadside. Evidently, he's heard of this Jesus of Nazareth. But if you're a blind man and you, it would appear, don't have any friends, right? Because oftentimes... Um, 
the people brought to Jesus, their friends are bringing them to him. Like think of the, the, the man who's lame, right? He cannot by his own power get to Jesus. His friends have to bring him to Jesus. And Bartimaeus is going to be in the same situation, right? He's, he's blind. How is he, even if he's heard of Jesus, how is he going to find, figure out where Jesus is, get to Jesus, right? In order to ask for a miracle. But evidently Bartimaeus has heard of Jesus, knows what he's capable of, and this is his chance. And he is not going to let this chance go. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus is passing by, right? With every second, he gets farther away from Bartimaeus. And so Bartimaeus cries out all the louder. This is his chance, right? Sometimes we um, think of healings in the scriptures and we just are like, wow, so easy. They just happen to see Jesus. We're like, Hey Lord, think you can do this for me? And he's like, boom, sure. And their life is completely hunky dory after that. No, no, these people put it all out. They laid out for these miracles. All right. He is literally, I mean, we get this from the details in scripture. He's literally making a scene because this is his one chance and he's not going to let it go. And this is in contrast to, to like the, the, the rich man that we just saw a few gospels previous who is face to face with Jesus. And this is his chance that Jesus himself has offered. Right. And he turns it down, but this is Bartimaeus's chance and he is not going to let him go. He gets Jesus's attention because we're, we're told Jesus stands still. He, we get this idea that he stops walking, right? Kind of turns around and says, call him here. Now, why doesn't Jesus just call Bartimaeus himself? Well, many theologians will argue because he's teaching the crowds. Why? Because they responded poorly to the poor man, the Bartimaeus, the poor beggar. What did they do? They ordered him to be quiet. And so Jesus is teaching his followers, the crowds, how they ought to respond. Jesus stands still and says, call him here, right? He gives he gives the crowd a chance to redeem themselves. So they are obedient to our Lord. They call the blind man and they say to him, take heart, get up, he is calling you. Take heart, get up, he is calling you. So throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. Throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. Now, again, he's still blind, right? And so at this point, we can assume that there's a combination of him getting a little bit of help from the crowd, but also he is just, he's again, he's laying it all out there for Jesus. He's probably stumbling, falling. He's still blind, but he springs up and he comes to Jesus. What are, what are this thing in verse 50 of throwing off his cloak? Um, there's no hard and fast answer and that's okay because a lot of times in scripture, when there's no hard and fast explanation for something, these are, these are details in scripture that we can mull over and they can take on, uh, the Lord can give them a meaning specific to our circumstances as we pray through these details, right? But what is one possible explanation that scholars and theologians get 
Well, some will point out that in, in the Middle East, even today, it's not uncommon for beggars to spread their cloak upon the ground in order to gather the alms that they receive, all right? So there's a possibility that this, this cloak that has been gathering alms um, that, that belongs to Bartimaeus, he is throwing off, okay? In many, in many ways, how the disciples who follow Jesus throw off their source of income, right? They leave behind their wealth, their jobs, their security, Bartimaeus, if we want to take this interpretation, and again, I'm not saying it is the hard and fast interpretation, but if we want to take this interpretation, there's some fascinating implications that even Bartimaeus in his poverty, right? All he has being the alms that pilgrims offer him, casts even that off in order to follow after Jesus, to to come to Jesus at our Lord's beck at his invitation, He comes face to face with our Lord. And what does Jesus say to him? What do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? These are the same words that were addressed to our friends, James and John, just last week in our gospel. What do you want me to do for you? And what did James and John ask for? The seats of honor, the place of honor, one at the right and one at the left of our Lord when he comes into his glory, right? What does Jesus say? He says, I can't give you that. It has been prepared by my father in advance. But what I can give you, essentially what Jesus says is, what I can give you, I will, <laughs> which is glorification. But um, in in the new world order that Jesus is, is bringing about, Glorification comes through suffering. It comes through conforming our will to the will of God, which Jesus himself does and which we take as an example and do as well. Okay, so Jesus um, can't give James and John exactly what they want, but he will still give them what they want as far as he can. What does Bartimaeus ask for? My teacher. In Greek, there's actually the the transliteration of the Aramaic Rabboni. Okay, it comes from Rabbi, but it has this this ending on it that that gives us kind of this affectionate possessive, not just teacher, but my teacher. And it's interesting because mm, there's a couple times we see this in the Gospels. Um, in the resurrection account in John, Mary Magdalene refers to Jesus as Rabboni, my teacher. You know, this is in contrast to those who refer to Jesus as rabbi, which is frequently the Pharisees and Sadducees, right? And it's kind of condescending and um, and snide a little bit. But here we get the 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 affectionate kind of possessive, not just rabbi but rabboni. What do you want me to do for you, my teacher? that I may see, that I may see. That's the literal translation. It's a, it's, it's kind of almost has a little bit of an ellipses to it. That I may see. What do you want me to do for you? It's interesting because Bartimaeus isn't necessarily saying exactly what he wants Jesus to do for him, but he's saying what his need is what his lack is, that I may see. It's interesting because we see Our Lady posing her intercession in much the same way. 
So if we if we jump gospels and go again to John to the wedding feast at Cana, um, when Jesus is like, what do you want me to do? Um, she just says, they have no wine. And then tells them, the, the servants do whatever he tells you. So she doesn't get very specific. She just points out the need. Bartimaeus does much the same thing. My teacher, that I may see. Jesus obviously interprets his need um, and interprets the solution to his need and is pleased to grant him a miracle. Verse 52, Jesus said to him, go, your faith has made you well. In the Greek, it can be read, your faith has healed you. It's sozo in Greek. Or it can be also rendered, your faith has saved you. Your faith has saved you. And this points to a more profound reality going on here than merely Bartimaeus having his sight restored to him, right? Because what has Bartimaeus just done? He has put all his faith in Jesus. And faith in Jesus does not just provide the opportunity for for a kind of temporal healing of, of our needs. And we all have needs, right? We might not be blind, but we certainly have needs. But putting our faith in Jesus in these these temporal needs also can habilitate us to put our faith in Jesus in everything. And when we put our faith in regards to everything in our Lord, when we place our faith in him, he can save us. This is the the beautiful mystery, again, of suffering, of how our Lord allows suffering because he brings this greater good out of this lesser good or even this evil of suffering. Because in our need, the only man that we can turn to who can help us is the one who can save us from everything, not just the one thing, but from everything. And so we should look on our needs with great joy and satisfaction because they are a constant reminder of him who can fill us with everything, not just one thing, with everything. Go, your faith has made you well. Your faith has saved you. And we're told immediately he regained his sight. Bartimaeus regained his sight and followed him on the way, followed Jesus on the way. I think there've been a couple times in our in our looking at Mark that I've pointed out that Mark frequently refers to the way. And a lot of times it is in a context like this where Jesus is moving about a path, right? He's he's on a journey and we hear this this notion of the way. But every time we hear this in Mark there's also a spiritual significance to it. And this is not surprising because for Mark the way um the, this this term in Greek doesn't just refer to like a road, but it actually refers to the Christian way. And so we get this, this double kind of meaning that not only did Bartimaeus likely literally follow Jesus on his way to Jerusalem, but also committed his his way of life to a Christian way of life. He, he committed to following our Lord, um, not just physically, but also spiritually. Now, I want to again revisit this idea for a moment of, of, of the people healed in the Bible, healed in the gospels of just being so lucky, like just having everything handed to them. 
So let's explore, let's explore this for a moment. And this is really poignant for our gospel in particular, because Jesus is heading out of Jericho. He encounters Bartimaeus. He restores his sight to him. And Bartimaeus, we're told, follows him. Now, Jesus is on the way to Jerusalem, where he's going to suffer and die. And shortly thereafter, his disciples, his followers, are going to become the object of intense oppression as well. And so what we have here are not people who have this merely this extraordinary gift given to them, although that is true, right? But not they don't merely have this extraordinary gift of healing of a miracle given to them. And then their life is just hunky-dory, you know, and they, they died in old age. They lived to a ripe old age and were surrounded by family and friends on their death. I mean, maybe some, some of them were, but the situation quickly becomes such that being a follower of Christ means you are a target and you are likely going to be martyred. And so what really is the response here? What is really going on here? Jesus heals Bartimaeus. He restores his sight to him. And in gratitude and, and understanding, Bartimaeus follows Jesus, not just physically, but spiritually, which implies that Bartimaeus is willing for the sake of Jesus, of love of God, to give up that thing which God just gave him and more. Because by following Jesus to Jerusalem, and we know what happens at Jerusalem, Bartimaeus is willing to give his very life to Christ. So these are not people who just you know, won the spiritual jackpot and lived a cush life afterwards. These are people who laid it all on the line in order to get Jesus's attention, first and foremost, risking reputation, risking risking not getting a miracle, right? What are you going to do when Jesus doesn't heal you or you can't get our Lord's attention? Is that going to turn you away from Jesus? How are you going to respond in that situation? So there's that, but then there's also the fact that these people who encountered Jesus, they followed him, which means Jesus gave them this gift and they gave him a gift back, the gift of their life, a willingness to suffer even to the point of martyrdom, because that was the reality um, in the first century. To follow Jesus meant to have a target on your back. And this was not just in the first century, but this is like in the second century, in the third century, okay? For the first several hundred years of Christianity, to follow Jesus meant, I'm going to go with him to Jerusalem. And all that that implies, and that's what Bartimaeus is doing here. It's a beautiful beautiful thing to see and a beautiful thing to consider. And we can pray to Bartimaeus that we can have the faith that he does and the courage to follow our Lord to Jerusalem. I want to talk about um, the broader scriptural context here because there are some, some wonderful Old Testament concepts that are, that are plugging into our gospel here. First of all, the prophets, okay? And um, we'll look primarily at our first reading where the church gives us an example of kind of the Old Testament prophetic background that bolsters our gospel here. We can also look to Joshua. 
all right, for some Old Testament context, because Jesus is always fulfilling the Old Testament, right? All over the place, left and right. This is one of my favorite things about reading the Bible is that he's always a boom, boom, boom. He's always fulfilling the Old Testament. So we're going to see him fulfilling um, Joshua. And then we're also going to see him, so we're going to see him as the new Joshua. And then we're also going to see him as the new David, which is not super surprising since Bartimaeus takes so much time to refer to Jesus as the son of David, right? And interestingly enough, Many times in Mark's gospel previous to this, anytime someone makes a declaration about the identity of Jesus, a public declaration, our Lord often hushes, gently hushes them because the time is not right. But here, just just miles away from Jerusalem and, and our Lord's chosen end, he allows Bartimaeus to yell at the top of his lungs, son of David, have mercy on me, okay? So our Lord is is beginning to allow his identity to be publicly seen. And this is indeed going to lead to his passion. Okay, let's talk about the prophetic background here of our gospel. And again, I said we can turn to the readings that the church gives us. Our first reading, Jeremiah chapter 31, verses seven through nine. Now, Jeremiah 31 is super important. If you've been to any of my classes, you know why. I was just teaching this morning and brought in Jeremiah 31, verse 31, where the prophet speaks of a new covenant, okay? So this is a very important section of scripture. And in it, Jeremiah is prophesying not just a new covenant, but a new Messiah who's going to come and institute that covenant. And what are some of the things that he says that will happen when this time arrives? For thus says the Lord, sing aloud with gladness for Jacob and raise shouts for the chief of the nations. Proclaim, give praise and say, save, O Lord, your people, the remnant of Israel. See, I am going to bring them from the land of the north and gather them from the farthest parts of the earth, among them the blind and the lame, those with child and those in labor together, a great company, they shall return here, all right? And again, what is the context of the prophets? Now, I don't have time to go into this whole Old Testament kind of um robust background, but the prophets are speaking um, in the in the the time of the divided kingdom as well as the exile, all right? And so here, when Jeremiah is saying he's going to gather from, from the land of the north and from the farthest parts of the earth, he's referring to the, the tribes of Israel who have been taken off into exile and scattered to, to the ends of the earth. God is going to remain faithful to his covenant and he's going to bring them back, right? He's going to save the remnant of Israel. And we're going to know that this is happening when we see things like the blind regaining their sight, okay? This is a message of Jeremiah. But we also see it in Isaiah. And actually in Isaiah chapter 35, verse four and following, we get fantastic parallels with our gospel um, in this section in Isaiah. Um, 35.4 of Isaiah, say to those who are of a fearful heart, be strong, fear not. What is the crowd? Say to Bartimaeus, right? Take heart, get up, he is calling you. So Isaiah says, so, say to those who are of a fearful heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. 
right? So when we see these things happening, we know that the Messiah has arrived. So this is the prophetic background here. Um, and obviously for, for Mark, Jesus indeed is the Messiah because we have Bartimaeus crying out the Messianic title, son of David. What does it mean to be called the son of David? It doesn't just mean that you're a descendant of David, although that's obviously implied, but what does it mean to be the, the son of David? This is like a, this is like a specific, almost technical title. It means that you're the Messiah. All right. So for Mark, Jesus is healing the blind and the blind are calling him the son of David. So the messianic age is upon us. The, the, the Messiah, the anointed one has arrived. Let's look at Joshua for a moment here. Okay. And I'm not going to dive into the text in particular, but let's just broadly explore this story. So we know that Joshua is the successor to Moses. Moses is not allowed to lead the people into the promised land. And so Joshua is going to be the one to lead the people into the promised land. This is after they've been wandering in the desert for 40 years after their exodus from Egypt. Okay, so we have new exodus imagery going on here. Let's talk briefly here for a moment before we get into the Jericho connection about Joshua's name. In um, in Hebrew, Yeshua is the same name as Jesus, okay? So Jesus' name, technically speaking, is actually Joshua, and it means God saves, okay? So in his very name, we see Jesus as a new Joshua. So Joshua is charged with leading the people into the promised land, First and foremost, he crosses the Jordan River to take them into the promised land. And then the first the first city that they come upon that they also need to pass through to, to take, to capture, is the city of Jericho, okay? And we know the story that, um, that the Lord tells them to process around the walls of the city for seven days with the Ark of the Covenant. And then after a loud cry, a loud holy shout, right? He's going to uh, he's going to make the walls of the city fall, and our Lord is our God is faithful to to His promises, and indeed um, Jericho falls. All right. Now, when we look at Jesus's life, specifically his public ministry, what do we see? The first thing he does in his public ministry is um, he is baptized by John the Baptist in the Jordan River. Okay, so New Exodus um, themes right off the bat. Now. After he is uh, passes through uh, the Jordan River, after he is um, he is uh, uh, baptized in the Jordan River, he takes a little bit of a break, if you will. He breaks, if you will, from the 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 Old Testament biblical narrative, and I'll get more into this in a second when we look at David. But he breaks from that narrative, right? He doesn't go right away to Jericho. He spends his time announcing that the kingdom of God is at hand and doing things like healing the blind and the lame, okay, to, in order to announce that the kingdom of God is at hand. Now, after he's done that, he's going to come to Jericho, okay, on his way to taking Jerusalem, all right? And so, again, we see this, these beautiful parallels between um, the Old Testament and the New Testament, between Joshua and Jesus, between the first uh, Exodus and the new Exodus, Okay. So that's the Joshua back, background that's really important. Let's look at David here to wrap up our time together and our look at this passage. David. So um, we see Jesus as a, a not just a new David, but also a new son of David. Okay, let's start there. 
So um, Jesus, at the beginning of his public ministry, goes to the Jordan River where he is baptized by John the Baptist, okay? This is a clear parallel with not just Joshua, but also Solomon, okay? Because when Solomon is crowned king, he goes to a river and he is anointed by a priest and a prophet, Nathan the pre- uh, Nathan the prophet and Zadok the priest, all right? And so to begin his public ministry, Jesus himself goes to a river and is anointed by, is baptized, anointed by John the Baptist, who himself is a priest. He has a priestly pedigree and he's the prophet par excellence, okay? So Jesus is the new son of David. He begins his public ministry in much the same way that Solomon begins his reign. But again, we have this brief break from the the parallel narrative, all right? Whereas Solomon immediately after his coronation goes up into Jerusalem and mounts his throne, Jesus is going to travel about announcing the arrival of the kingdom of God. But now his time has come. And so he is headed to Jerusalem and he has a throng about him. And he's going to enter Jerusalem triumphantly, just as Solomon did, all right? And he's going to mount his throne, but his throne is not a typical throne. He's going to mount the throne of the cross, all right? Crowned, not with a crown of gold, but with a crown of thorns, all right? There's another aspect here that's really interesting where we can bring in the image of the blind, right? So if we turn to 2 Samuel chapter 5, specifically verse 6, we get to the section of scripture where the people of Israel, all 12 tribes have just come to David and said, we want you to be king over us. And they make a covenant with David. And so David begins his reign over all 12 tribes of Israel. And then the next thing that he does is establish his capital and, um, David is an astute political leader, and so he does not want to favor any one of the 12 tribes by placing his capital in one of their cities. And so what does he decide to do? He decides to go to Jerusalem, which does not belong at this time to any one of the 12 tribes. Why does it not belong to any one of the 12 tribes? Because it's still being held by the pagans, the Jebusites, okay? It's one of the last strongholds in the promised land that the the original people, the original inhabitants have not been driven out of. And so David goes to Jerusalem to drive out the Jebusites. We could read at 2 Samuel 5, 6, the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land who said to David, and this is the key, they say to David, this is the Jebusites, you will not come in here. The blind and the lame will ward you off. The blind and the lame will ward you off. Really meant to be insulting, right? As if to say, you are so weak that our blind people and our lame people are going to be the ones to ward you off. (laughs) And this is ridiculous because David indeed immediately takes um, takes the city of Jerusalem and establishes that it as his own city, as his capital city, and as uh, the the soon to be the home, right, of of the Lord Himself when He brings brings the Ark of the Covenant up to Jerusalem. Okay, but what is significant here? Whereas the Jebusites said the blind and the lame will ward off David, here we have the blind and the lame, specifically the blind, right? Bartimaeus, welcoming the son of David. Okay? 
welcoming him, not, not, um, not, uh, showing any defensiveness of the city, right? They, they welcome him on the way to Jerusalem. And so again, parallels here, not only with the prophets, the fulfillment of, of what is to come in the prophetic uh, literature, not only of Joshua, not only of Solomon, but also of David. All these beautiful details collide in Jesus himself, who, who um, fulfills them perfectly in his very person and in his ministry. And, and this is the stuff of the Bible that is, is thoroughly exciting, my friends. As we move towards the end of the liturgical year, and as we move towards Jerusalem with Jesus, because in in the very next section of Mark, Jesus is going to enter Jerusalem, all right? And this is going to begin his passion narrative. He's going to do a lot in Mark's gospel. He's going to do a lot of teaching and preaching when he arrives in Jerusalem. And that's a lot of what we're going to explore in the coming weeks. But no, contextually, we are miles away from Jerusalem with Jesus, which means we're miles away and moments away from his cross. Are we willing to be like Bartimaeus, who threw off everything? Yes, he was given this great gift of sight. And does not Jesus give us this great gift of sight as well? But he threw off everything, willing to sacrifice everything in order to follow Jesus on the way. Are we willing? to do the same. 